You've found it. Come on in. You're in the right place. This is After the Virus, the podcast brought to you by After the Virus, the ebook and paperback, now available at Amazon.com. Welcome to my very first podcast. My name is Scott Huber, and I'm the author of After the Virus, a Survivalist's Journal. This journal was discovered on the shore of Alcatraz Island by recolonizers, decades after the Great Collapse and Cleansing. It's one of the only known accounts of the year leading up to March 21st, 2034, a date known by heart to every descendant of a Survivalist. In future podcasts, I'll provide more background on the story and some more insights into who I am, as well as begin to address frequently asked questions. But first, I need an audience to listen and develop those questions. I hope that you become a fan and invite as many people as you know to tune in as well. Thank you for listening, and by the way, if you're ever placed in a survival situation, I hope that you survive in style. April 15th, 2033. This is the journal detailing my experience after the virus. I'm not certain that there will be anyone left to read it, but if there is anybody remaining at the end of all this, if civilization survives, perhaps this diary will serve as an accounting of what transpired in the days immediately following the great wave of death and the collapse of the world as we knew it. I'm sitting here in a place I never thought I'd be, yet often imagined I would. I'm overlooking a wide canyon of gray pines, blue oaks and bay laurel, deerbrush, buckbrush, redbud and coffeeberry. The chasm is framed by rock chimneys, rose-hued palisades, and an untold number of caves, like the one I'm sitting at the entrance of now. There are no man-made sounds, and birdsong surrounds me but it's drowned out by the cacophony of memories of the last week all that i've lost and all the terrible things i've done this is the first chance i've had to stop and think about it the first time i can remember that i'm not just reacting to a crisis that requires an immediate life or death response if i'd taken an extra moment to think about them i'd likely be dead like the seven billion others the past three, or is it four, days have been non-stop, and my body needs this downtime. For the last two of those, I've been working my tail off, trying to get camp set up. Here's what brought me to this place. How far back should I go? As I think about it, I get angry, and my face is reddening. Climate change. The assholes denied it. Now they're all dead from it. It started getting much worse a few years back. Significant increases in droughts, wildfires, freak storms, flooding, mudslides, not just here, but all over the world. The ocean fish populations crashed. Genetically modified crops all caught something that caused a global famine. Economies collapsed, anarchy reigned, and poverty and starvation became prevalent in even the world's most affluent nations. That set the stage for disease. 
Diseases we'd only read about in history books or sci-fi novels. Pox, plagues, polio, and more. As water levels rose, the fresh water supplies worldwide were all fouled. Tropical mosquitoes moved north and brought malaria and other blood-borne illnesses. The final straw was the mutation of the Ebola virus. It had languished in equatorial Africa for decades. Once it moved out of Africa, it changed in a hundred different ways. Eventually, mosquitoes, fleas, and ticks became carriers, and strangely, there was speculation that a small percentage of humans carried and spread the disease without showing any signs of infection. The virus had increased in intensity as well. There were no cures and no vaccines for these new strains. To catch it was a death sentence and a messy one. Within hours of exposure, victims began to hemorrhage blood from their mouth, their nose, eyes, ears, through their pores, and every other orifice. Anyone coming into contact with the blood would suffer the same fate within hours. It hadn't hit our region yet, but it seemed as though there was nothing that could stop it. That's when I started packing. I've always been something of a survivalist. I've been a hunter and a fisherman all my life. I was in the first wave of special forces troops to fight in the Tora Bora Mountains of Afghanistan in 2002, where I did more killing than I care to remember. When I got back, I used my GI benefits to double major in botany and zoology, and I became a wildlife biologist. For recreation, I studied Native American cultures and immigrant history. Ishi called the last wild Indian, had lived in the foothills just 30 miles east of my home until he was discovered in 1910. For three decades, he had evaded human contact and was pursued by white Indian hunters in the extremely rugged wilderness of canyons, cliffs, and caves that now bear his name. I hunted and explored that area for years and knew the location of many of the caves that he and the Yana tribe used for shelter and hiding and I meant to go there to do the same. With the help of my wife, 17-year-old son, and 15-year-old daughter, I began caching supplies in the wilderness. That was when the roads were still open, and a loaded pickup truck was not yet the subject of scrutiny. Camping gear, food, water, medical supplies, tools, etc. I hid them all in those hills, just in case of a collapse. I had no idea how soon it would come. No one did. When the virus suddenly began showing up all around us, travel between regions became severely restricted. But when the guardsmen at the checkpoints became infected, the exodus of people fleeing from the outbreak was unchecked. We had taken the kids out of school months earlier and were homeschooling them as best we could. We had both quit our jobs for fear of becoming infected at work. We used our last paychecks and our savings to buy food, water, ammo, and gold. We locked ourselves in our house thinking we could wait it out. Who can blame a teenager for wanting to socialize? I would have done the same thing at her age. She was young and beautiful and full of life. She'd been unscrewing the plywood over her window, meant to keep others out. When she asked me for water and complained of a headache and chills, she admitted to having gone out. When I saw small droplets of blood 
beating up along her arm and seeping from her eyes. I knew there was only one small chance of saving the rest of the family. It was now depressingly clear that she had contracted the virus and was about to endure a painful and messy death that would, without any doubt, infect every other family member if it were allowed to run its course. No one else in the family would have the strength to do what needed to be done. It was up to me. There was no doubt as to the outcome. She would be dead in hours, and the rest of us soon after. Or I could intervene and just possibly put the rest of us out of harm's way. It was all about saving the family, about minimizing our losses. I had to be strong and act decisively if any of us were going to get out of this alive. When I told my wife of my plan, she fought me viciously. She thought it was better that we all die. All of my military training, my years in the woods, screamed, survive. When my hysterical wife attacked me with a lamp, I instinctively defended myself, inadvertently knocking her out. With my wife unconscious, I mixed up all the pills I could find in the house with the water my daughter had asked for. Within an hour, she had stopped breathing. As carefully as I could, I threw the blankets over her and gently carried her body into the yard where I concealed it behind the tool shed. Then I wept. When I came in, my wife was crying hysterically and my son was calming her. Both looked up and glared at me. We spent the next 24 hours watching each other for symptoms. The next afternoon, my son admitted to being tired. We hadn't gotten much sleep. When he woke from his nap with a raging fever, there were red tears coming down the corner of his eyes and his ears were caked with blood. Although I knew what that meant and what I would have to do, I tried to placate him. I asked him to go out back and fetch some wood to put on the fire. It was all about saving the family, about minimizing our losses. I had to be strong and act decisively if any of us were going to get out of this alive. As he went out the door, I grabbed my rifle, and as he walked to the wood pile, I shot him once through the heart. He and his sister were the two most beautiful things I had ever made. I dropped the gun and began to sob. When my wife heard the shot, she ran to the door and saw what I had done. She hit me with her fists and screamed every curse she could at me. Then she collapsed in a heap on the floor. I carried her to bed and left her there sobbing. When I checked on her in the middle of the night, she was bathed in sweat and her pillow was soaked in blood. It was all about saving the family, about minimizing our losses. I had to be strong and act decisively if any of us were going to get out of this alive. I took a clean pillow from another room and being careful not to touch her, smothered her. She jerked and spasmed, but in just a minute, she was still. Then I was completely alone. I was crazy with guilt and anguish. There was not a single reason for me to remain in that house of death. If I was going to come down with a disease, I might as well come down with it while trying to get away. 
As soon as I stepped out the front door, I could tell that the world I knew had collapsed in the three days since I had ventured out onto the street. The roads were virtually empty. The only other cars I saw were speeding to somewhere or parked at odd angles on the edge of the boulevards. Yards that had been manicured just weeks earlier were now overgrown and dead. Trash and debris was strewn everywhere. The air was smoky from dozens of buildings and house fires. Dead bodies could occasionally be seen on porches, in yards, or on sidewalks. Many were partially consumed by packs of dogs that roamed the streets. The sound of sirens and the howling of dogs was only broken by regular bursts of gunfire. I headed the pickup toward the hills in my stash. The remnants of quarantine checkpoints lay smashed at various points along the road, and piles of burning tires blocked the lanes. Bodies with obvious bullet wounds lay next to the barricades. Apparently, others had to shoot their way out, or in. My first encounter with a live human was not positive. As I approached an overloaded pickup that was stopped at the shoulder of a steep grade, a haggard young man and woman darted from behind the truck, shooting at me. It was clear I couldn't make it past them without being hit, so I instinctively gunned the motor and swerved right into them. The woman glanced off of the right front fender, hard. I hit the man squarely with the front grill and he was immediately sucked under the speeding truck. In the rearview mirror, I could see the woman writhing on the roadside. The man was an unrecognizable trail of parts smeared over 50 yards. I kept my eye on the temperature gauge to make sure that I hadn't damaged the radiator. I had to pass through the small foothill community of Cohasset to get to my cash. After my experience with the shooting couple, I was anxious about driving past the dozens of cabins lining both sides of the road. I sped up to get past the homes quicker, tires whining as I slid through the curves at 70 miles an hour. Two miles in, I began to loosen up, thinking that everyone was dead. Coming around a blind curve... I had to slam on my brakes to avoid running into a large water truck parked directly across the road. On either side of the road, the shoulder was clogged with large pines. I skidded to a stop just feet from the truck. Suddenly, a half dozen people dressed in all white and covered with various plastic protective gear rushed me from both sides of the road. Throwing the truck into reverse and turning to look through my rear window, I peeled out backwards, fishtailing down the road as the gowned pursuers chased after me. Spotting a dirt driveway on my right, I slammed on the brakes, jammed the transmission back into drive, and bolted down it. Needing to get back in the direction I had been going, I took another driveway that headed in the right direction past a mobile home. A cedarboard fence blocked my way, so I plowed right through it into the driveway of yet another adjoining home. By bursting through fence after fence, I eventually made it beyond the water truck and the waving, chasing white gowns. I didn't want to know what they wanted or why. Once past the concentration of cabins, I had only occasional dwellings to get beyond before I turned down a dusty red dirt road that led to an obscure two-track path that followed the spine of a hogsback ridge for five gut-jarring miles before down trees and dense shrubs reduced it to a walking trail. I plowed the pickup as far as it would go into the shrubs. I edged it into the densest patch of vegetation I could find, then covered it with broken limbs and branches I'd left in my wake. I hoped that no one would find it, and at the same time, 
wanted it for an eventual return to society once things got back to normal, or a source of parts if things didn't. Daylight is almost gone here in the canyon. My account is almost up to present. I'll bring a current tomorrow. I don't want a light to be seen should anyone else have escaped to this wilderness. Thanks again for the pleasure of your company. Don't forget to order your own copy of the ebook or paperback at Amazon.com.